Yeah. What, what, I think the point is this little thing they call selling, which Aristotle. Yeah, but like, Axe is like, your girlfriend will want to have sex with you, and then they all talk about, which is like, all oh, women are. Be it's just so. Yeah. Yeah, see, this is what Aristotle's complaining about. What he's really complaining about is the rise of an advertising culture and the fact that you have to pay for the ads that your phone, for the data that, um, for the ads that your phone is imposing upon you. So that's really what Aristotle was, he saw it coming. He was really prescient. He was, he was amazing about that. So the way Waze works is, well, the, the one thing about Waze is that it will give you the, what it thinks is the fastest route no matter how tiny the streets and how many turns you have to take, whereas Google Maps gives you like a reasonable and reasonably fast route, but it tends to keep you on major streets and arteries. But what happens with Waze, this is something that we'll have occasion to talk about later on, is that you get what in in finance are called stampedes. Anyone know what a stampede is? So if everyone is buying and you buy, then there's a stampede which drives up the price of things. So one of the things that Buchan mentions, he just mentions it offhandedly, is the tulip craze. Do people know about that? What is it, Jimmy? Um, so that was when there was a lot of speculation in the Dutch market, I think in the 1600s. Yeah. They were like basically like betting on like tulip bulbs or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, then eventually it collapsed pretty a lot. It only lasted like a year, I think. Yeah, but it was it was it was really strange. So tulips at the time, no one knew how to how to grow them. That is, they're like truffles now. They couldn't be, or pearls. They couldn't be. You couldn't get a good tulip because you had a green thumb. You just had to find them. So tulips were kind of rare, and be, by the laws of supply and demand, they were therefore more expensive than other kinds of flowers. So speculators, merchants, not Shylock types, but maybe Antonio types, or maybe something halfway between Shylock and Antonio, Antonio and Shylock, would buy tulips to sell them at higher prices. And it therefore became a really cool thing if you owned a tulip. And because it was a cool thing if you owned a tulip, the prices went up still higher, so, so more people would pay more money to buy tulips, which they could then sell to the rich, so that eventually, and this happened really, really fast, tulips, a single potted tulip would cost as much as a house. So when in The Big Short and in uh, movies like that, uh, what's the other one, The 50 Homes or whatever it is, people are flipping houses, back in the 1600s they were flipping tulips. And tulips were going, it was like people would put their entire inheritance into buying a dozen tulips, which they would then sell to other people who had larger inheritances, which they were willing to put into buying tulips. So it's like tulips were Ponzi schemes, which is you only bought a tulip because after a while you thought you could sell it for more than you bought it for. And the price of tulips kept going up, so people who were doing that were not only making money because the price of tulips were go was going up, but they were also driving the price of tulips up in competition with other people trying to make money. So that's a stampede. And the stampede is that because everyone is buying tulips, everyone is buying tulips. 
and that means that everyone is going in the same direction in the same way as buffaloes when they stampede. One buffalo panics and starts running in a direction and bumps into another buffalo that panics and starts running in the same direction, and then suddenly all the buffalo are running in that direction, and that's a stampede. It happens with people, too. It's when people die in soccer stadiums or at rock concerts. It's because, or, or when they're making pilgrimages, it's because there's a panic, and the panic is contagious. If other people are panicking, how do you not panic? And in fact, if other people are panicking, you had better panic, because if you don't panic, you will be crushed. So panic feeds on itself, not so much as an emotion the way it does for us individually, that is, individually, when we panic, part of, the, part of the emotion of panic or the experience of panic is we panic because we're panicking. But socially or among more than a few, when you have a crowd of any sort panicking and stampedes, which can be good panics, panicking to get something before it runs out rather than panicking to get away from something, is self-sustaining. So... That's what happens, that's what happened with the tulips. And that idea of a stampede is a problem with markets, which is one of the things that Buchan was saying. There's, yeah? Actually, no. Um, so, what happened with the tulips? Is that sort of what happened with like beanie babies? And yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not too many people like lost their entire livelihoods. A few probably did, but not too many lost their entire livelihoods by, by mortgaging their house and putting it all into Beanie Babies, but some people probably did. I feel like Beanie Babies are also more durable than like, tulips. Like, what if you yeah, I mean, the weird thing about the tulip dies. is that it dies. So that is the weird thing about the tulip. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just the way we grow them now, but don't they, aren't they seasonal? Yeah. So it's, but there were greenhouses back then. So I you, you... The bulbs were the, you know, must have been the really precious... Yeah, that is, they're, are they perennials? I think you can leave the bulb in and they sprout again. Yeah, yeah. so that's the point. How so it's a tulip bulb. No, they don't know how to multiply them. Oh. Okay. They know how to make them fruitful, but not how to multiply them. <laughs> so that was that was the problem. But that that was also the solution. It meant that that like Bitcoin, there is a limited quantity of tulips. You know, that's one of the things about Bitcoin is there are only so many bitcoins that will ever be mined. So that idea, which is probably the worst part about and the stupidest part about Bitcoin, it's a kind of return to the gold standard, except it's digital mining. But we'll get to that. At any rate, Waze does the same thing. So that what happens if you use Waze sometimes, and I think, it, has anyone used Waze? How many of you use Waze? So have you ever had that experience where you use Waze and it turns out that there are also 500 other people using Waze? and they're taking the same route that Waze predicted would save you five minutes, and in fact it adds half an hour. So that will happen if everyone is trying to go to the same place. So if you use Waze to get to Foxborough or something, and Waze finds a route which is faster than what everyone else is taking, the problem is it also tells everyone else to take that route, and suddenly it's slower. And there was a real Waze catastrophe a couple of summers ago where people, it took people, it's about a two-hour drive to Hyannis, but it was a little bit trafficy. So everyone got on Waze, and it ended up taking them eight hours to get to Hyannis. It was like just hundreds of people trying to get to Hyannis and thinking they were going to outsmart traffic. But remember, Waze's, Waze's slogan is outsmarting traffic together. 
So they were outdumbing traffic together because they were all doing it. So everyone was going the same way. And it's like when you try to pass someone on the street and you go right, but they go left, and so you're still facing them. That's, that was, that's a version of a stampede. Yeah, it is. Describe, um, explain what a tragedy of the commons is. So, I think it like originated with like cows and pastures. So mm-hmm. We have a good, technically in economic terms, that's like open to everyone. It's not exclusive, and you don't have to pay for it. It can get like overused, and then the goods no good anymore. So, like overgrazing on a public pasture, kind of thing. Yeah, or dumping CO two into the atmosphere, things like that. It, that, those are all versions of tragedy of the commons. The tragedy of the commons is often used as an anti-socialist or anti-communist argument, that the commons becomes the communism, which is that if everything is shared, everyone will take more than their share if there isn't a mechanism to prevent them from doing it. That's the, that's the basic idea of the tragedy of the commons. It's a version of prisoner's dilemma, which is that it all, if, it, if you have a situation where you'll do better if you defect than if you cooperate, then everyone, if everyone else is cooperating, you will do better as a defector, but that means that everyone defects. A version of this is the, a, a really interesting one is something called a Keynesian beauty contest. Is that a term anyone knows? So it's, we were just talking about why you use Google Maps and not Waze. And uh, so we had an interesting discussion about ways. I just wanted you to know that, that this caused an interesting discussion about the tulip craze in Holland, in the Netherlands, in the 16th century, and how panics and stampedes work. And now we're on to the tragedy of the commons and Keynesian beauty contests. So okay. that was all thanks to your email. Okay. So the um, Keynesian beauty contest is a little bit like Family Feud. Do you guys know that? You love it? I love Family Feud. How come you love it? That's great. <laughs> okay, so, so Family Feud is a restricted version of a Keynesian beauty contest, which makes it doable and doesn't run into the kind of paradoxes of panics and stampedes and self-reference that you get in a Keynesian beauty contest. So what Keynes, do people know who John Maynard Keynes is? Does everyone? No. Who's John Maynard Keynes? Keynes model? He was like an economic, whoa, economist of some sort. Yeah. He Keynesian economics, I don't really know what that means. Right, because of his name, he thought, huh, I should work on Keynesian economics. <laughs> there actually is a guy who, the, there's a great, well, we saw, we didn't read it, but one of the things that I handed out the first day of class was George Herbert's poem, Avarice, which is about um, money, thou bane of bliss and source of woe. How comes it that thou art so sweet and clean? Which is kind of what we were talking about yesterday. Pecunia doesn't, money doesn't. Smell. Smell. Yeah, so how can money, which is so evil, be so sweet and clean, is the question. And the one of Herbert's great editors was a 19th century or, or late 19th century figure whose uncle really liked Herbert and 
convinced his mother to name her son, her, the la, his last name was Palmer, but convinced his mother to name her newborn son George Herbert Palmer. And so George Herbert Palmer, because of his name, became really interested in George Herbert after whom he was named and kind of brought George Herbert back to the attention of the public eye. So you can do something because you're, you're chasing your own name in the world. And do you guys know that um, Kip Harrington is the descendant of one of the great Renaissance translators and poets and one of the originators of the heroic couplet in English? Isn't that great? So now you have another reason to watch Game of Thrones. I heard Kip Harrington. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 So so it turns out Jon Snow knows a lot. The <coughs> Keynesian Beauty Contest was actually Keynes. So Keynesian economics is essentially what all intelligent economists since the Depression have been basing their ideas on. That is all, not, I shouldn't say intelligent, effective, all economists who, who actually have done good in the world. And it, Keynesian economics is basically, in a depression, the government should be spending and not trying to balance the budget. That the government needs to put more money out there when people aren't spending. And in particular, this is something that we'll talk about later in this class, Inflation, moderate inflation is a good thing. If you, that the worst thing that can happen to a currency is deflation. It's much worse than inflation. And moderate inflation is a good thing because it keeps the economy going. Because if you put money under your mattress in order to save it, that's money that's out of circulation. And inflation will make that money lose value over time. And the circulation of money is what the economy is. There's also a concept that we, I hope, will have occasion to talk about called velocity of money, where counting how much money there is in an economy is a really hard thing to do. But if you know the basic chemical formula that PV is a constant, right? Pressure times volume is a constant. Everyone remember this from high school? It equals NRT, PV equals NRT. So the idea is pressure times volume is a constant. The same kind of holds true with money, which is the amount of money, which is volume of money, let's say, times the velocity of money, which is how often money changes hands. Both of those are really important variables in how an economy is working. There can be tons of money that isn't spent that's just sitting around, and that's as bad as having very little money to spend. If the money's not being spent, then the economy is faltering. If there's not much money to spend, the economy will falter. Velocity of money would mean something like, what is someone, can someone imagine what a definition of velocity of money would be? Ian? It's essentially how often money changes hands. Yeah, per unit time. Yeah. So you would say that if a dollar changes hands five times during a day, that's a higher velocity of money than if it changes hands twice during the day. So you go to Starbucks because you like Howard Schultz, and for a dollar you get a sugar packet, and the Starbucks buys 
two pounds of coffee with, with the dollar that you spent on the sugar packet, and the coffee makers buy a new coffee I don't know, additive that makes coffee cheaper and the additive makers go to Starbucks and buy sugar, then that dollar has changed hands five times or however many times it is during the course of that day. If you go to Starbucks and buy <coughs> some sugar and then no one else comes into Starbucks and there isn't much business that day and then Starbucks deposits the dollar in the bank, it's a single dollar has changed hands that day but it's only changed hands once or twice if you count going to the bank as changing hands. And so that means the velocity of money is a lot lower, even though the amount of money in that tiny system is the same. So Keynes wants to increase the velocity of money during a recession or a depression, and he also wants the amount of money available to increase so that people will spend more because that's what you need to do. And if people aren't spending because money is gaining value because no one is able to sell anything, so they're selling it cheaper and cheaper, which means that you have a stampede towards saving. And a stampede towards saving is really, really bad if you have a stampede towards saving. It's one reason that Japan is doing so badly economically after being uh, just a really powerful economy through the, 19, through the early 1990s. It's now a really moribund economy, and it's because it has a very high savings rate. And if you're saving money, then people, in order to sell anything, lower the prices. But if they're lowering the prices, you have deflation, and it's better to hang on to money than to spend it on something that's going to be cheaper next week. So everyone is, their lives consist of waiting for sales that are never as good as even later future sales. But if money is losing value, then you'd better spend it. So that's, that's a fundamental Keynesian insight. At any rate, he wanted to know why markets go bad. And at the time that he was writing his general theory of money, he was interested in newspaper contests, which were a little bit like Family Feud, where you were supposed to look at pictures of six women and pick the one. It kind of looked like you were supposed to pick the one who looked most beautiful. But in fact, what you were supposed to do, and people realize this right away, this is the family feud part, was to pick the one that you thought the majority of people would find most beautiful. And so you were supposed to pick the winner among these six women. You were supposed to pick the winner, but the winner wasn't your own taste. The winner was who you thought the winner was going to be. And what that meant was that everyone was picking not the person they thought was most beautiful, but the person they thought other people would pick, but not the person that they thought other people would find most beautiful, but what? This is the family feud part. So if you're playing this, all right, so I think you were the only person in the infinity class. Well, owner was in it too, but he was auditing. Uh, so there's a version of this that this is why the $5 bill got ripped. Yeah. So everyone, yeah, you can't play because you know the trick. 
Sorry. What? You knew the trick to begin with. Well, but you didn't win, did you? No, I didn't. There you go. Okay, so actually, I don't think I have any money. I'll owe $5 to whoever wins this. How's that? Oh, no, I have a dollar. Someone can win a nice dollar. It's my last dollar. But don't worry about it. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So there you go. Okay, everyone get out a piece of paper. You can play. It's okay. No. No, you can definitely play. Of course you can. The whole point is that there should be asymmetrical skill at yeah, this. But I just want to see what it's Okay, fine. <laughs> so this is this is a behavioral economics version of a Keynesian beauty contest. It's like I'm on the reverse of that frying pan. The frying pan game? Oh right, right, sorry. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I was just thinking a famous slogan of the 20th century philosopher J.L. Austin, which I really love, is any frying pan in a fire. <coughs> so if you're in a fire and you see a frying pan, get into it. Oh, okay. Any frying pan in a fire. That's a panic also. Okay, so what you're going to do, think about this for a minute, but do not consult with anyone. Don't talk to your neighbors. Just think about it in your own mind. <coughs> is you're going to write down a number uh, between 1 and 100. It doesn't have to be a whole number. It's probably, it, it, but it can be. It might be easier if you do it as a whole number. But, but I won't specify that it has to be a whole number. But it has to be between 1 and 100, not less than 1, not more than 100. And the number that you want to write down is, and whoever comes closest to this will get the dollar, the number you want to write down is a number which is 70% of the average of all the numbers, including your own, written down in the class. So what's going to happen is you're going to write down the number, you're going to hand in the numbers, I'm going to add the numbers and divide them by the number of, of entries, and whoever comes closest to writing down a number, so put your name on the sheet, writing down a number which is 70% of the average of all the, of all the entries, including their own, will win the dollar. So think about it, take your time, and write a number down. You can think about it for a couple of minutes. So is everyone clear on what the question is? Okay, how are we doing? You can play. You can play. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. You could win a dollar. Well, you would be part of the information that, that's being spread around. Are you afraid that your data will be misused for advertising purposes? Yes. Okay. All right, then. Okay, has everyone done it? Consider how long other people are thinking. That might go, that might change your decision. Okay, hand them in. So, owner, do you have a phone with a calculator? Sorry? Oh, yeah, we can give it to owner. Thank you.
Are you, are you better? Good. All right. Are, do you want me to read them to you, and you can? Yeah, I think that would be that would be actually informative. So I'll read them I've to you. I've already put these two down. Okay, but I'm just looking at it. Read them out loud, so don't don't put them down again. For the first two. Okay, so the first two, which you're not going to put down again, are 45. I'm just curious what people's going to be on people's faces as I read these aloud. 31. Okay, you did those two already, though, right? 54. Maybe just look at Prue's face, because she's already done this. 32. Eighteen. Ooh. Are you feeling good about that or not? Thirty-two. Are you feeling good about that? That's a dollar. Back before inflation, that was real money. Thirteen. How do you feel about that so far? Side bet? Oh, should have been, should have been done mid-20s. So far, mid-20s. 47. Ah, uh, 20. Who wrote 20? This, no name. Okay. So Nicole wrote 20, or so she claims. No one else wants to, wants to claim the 20. All right. 51. And 35. And this is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So divide the sum by eleven and then multiply by point seven. Everyone see why we're doing that? Divided by 11 to get the average number, and then 0.7 is 70% of the average number. It's 24. 24. Whoa. Okay. So 24 was. So we have an 18, but I think there's something closer. A 13. No. Sorry? Oh, okay. Oh, there was an actual 20. So Nicole says. Who did 47? <coughs> okay. So there's an actual 20, a 51, a 35. Okay. You win the dollar. Yeah. Okay. Someone picked 51. Who's that? Why'd you pick 51? People gravitate towards the middle. Yeah. So, well, at first I thought it was 15 people. It wouldn't matter, though. Yeah, because it's still the average. Mm -hmm. Whether the average is among 15 or 100, it's still the average that they'll put down uh, between 1 and 100. Actually, if there's, for example, 1,000 people in the class, in that case, I think we would put closer to the middle. Okay, so, so you think you would have a regression towards the mean, so, yeah. and so the average number that people would put down is 50. Except wouldn't everyone else think that? Or most other people think that? So if you're trying to put down 70% of that, what would you put down? 35. 
you would put down 35 if you're trying to do 70% of what everyone else is putting down. Should have done 24.5. Right, which is 70% of 35. So if you do, if you think that everyone else is simply going to put down a number between 1 and 100 without thinking about the fact that they're supposed to be trying to put down 70% of what everyone else is going to put down, then 51, which is between one, the average would be 50.5 between 1 and 100. And because it's not between 0 and 100, it's between 1 and 100, the average would be 50.5, and 51 is reasonable. But if you remember that people are going to try to put down 70%, of the average. If you put down the average that everyone else is going to put down, you'll all converge towards 50, right, or 51. If I said put down the average number that you think people will put down, you might all put down 50. That would partly depend on the rules of the game, because if it was, do you know how the Price is Right works? One of the oldest shows, you, you're a real connoisseur. You ever watch um, Golden Balls? I, I, I write about golden balls. You should go to YouTube and look for golden balls. The problem with golden balls is that it gives the answer. It's like um, woman gets owned in final round or pwned in final round, which is too bad because it, it, you lose the excitement. I'll show you guys a golden ball episode because that's actually really crucial to Prisoner's Dilemma and stuff we're doing. There was an American version of it which Kennedy hosted called Friend or Foe. <laughs> But Golden Balls is a much ver better version. The British version is a much better version of it. I'll show you guys some episodes. We'll have a class on game shows. We'll have another class on game shows. So the price is right. The way the price is right works is you try to get, guess the right price of some commodity, which, of course, you don't know because advertising has scrambled your brain. And you will win it if you come closest to the price without going above it. Right? Isn't that how it works? So you want to guess something that is as high as it can be without being too high. It's a little like blackjack that way. You want to get as close to 21 without going over 21. With the prices right, you want to get as close to how much that new Jeep Wrangler will cost without going over the list price of the new Jeep Wrangler. So if you had a game like this game where the you wanted to give the average that everyone else put down and whoever came closest to that average without going over it. So not 70% of the average, which is how we were playing, but closest to that average without going over it, and it's between 1 and 100, what should you put down? Or the easier question is, if you want to just get the average, what should you put down? You should put down... 50 or 50.5, or if it has to be an integer, 50 or 51. If you don't want to go over it, you'd say 50, because the average would be 50 or 51. Some people put down 51, some people put down 50, but you don't want to go over 50 because some people put down 50. So if you're trying to get closest to the average, that's fine. If you're trying to get closest to the average without going over it, what should you put down? No? I don't think so. I think if you think about it... Is it the same thing? I think it's the same thing. You want to put down one. <coughs> you can't put down zero, but if you could, zero. Yeah. Or if you could put down negative numbers. Boy, could you mess things up. Negative infinity! <laughs> um, no, if you, you, you want to put down one or zero, why? 
Because then you will skew the average and everyone else will be over it. Yeah, because if you put down one and everyone else is putting down 50, then the average, if there are 15 people in the class, is going to be about 45. And therefore, you will have come closest without going over it by putting down one. So your one is both a guess and a weapon. That's the point. It's kind of like money. It has two functions. It's both the guess, that is a store of value, where you're, um, or an accounting instrument where you're trying to figure out how much it's going to be, the amount, but it is also a means to an end, which is skewing the value for everyone else. Well, what if well, then at least you haven't lost by putting down 50 when the average is 2, which would look kind of silly. There's, there's a travel agent game that works this way. I think Scientific American had Mathematical Recreations had an article about it where the, as I recall the way it works, is whoever bids lower for a ticket will win it. No, it's whoever bids higher for a ticket will win it. It's also, this is also how, I don't have any more money, but I would do this, but another version of this is an, a money auction, which I've actually been able to make a lot of money on, but because it's unethical, I've never kept the money, but you could try it at a party. Some, I, I did this in a class once, and then some, some of the students did try it at a party, and they came back really happy the next day, which is... The I'm trying to think if we can do a money auction. Well, no, we won't. But the way it works is I take a $10 bill. They, they do this at Harvard Business School. If you go to Harvard Business School, you should be aware of this. They do it at Harvard Business School like in the first class. The professor, in this case that would be me, takes a $10 bill and says, I will auction this to the highest bidder. However... If you come in second, you also have to pay, and you don't get to get anything for what you're paying. But you can bid anything. So a $10 bill, I auction it to the highest bidder, so one person bids a penny. Whoa, $10 for a penny? Who, why wouldn't you bid a penny? So another person says, wait, you can do that? You can bid a penny? And so they bid two cents. And then someone else says, huh, I'll bid a quarter. And someone else says, I'll bid a dollar. I mean, what the heck? And then the person who's bid the quarter says, I'll go to $1.50. Now the person who's bid the dollar is not going to win the $10, but it's going to have to pay a dollar. So, of course, the person who bids the dollar thinks, I'll bid two. And what they decide is they're going to go up to $10 because if they win the auction, they still come out ahead. However, they're competing with someone who is going to come out behind, and now it's starting to turn into money. So they bid two, and the guy who's bid $1.50 bids three to get back the loss of the $1.50 that he would otherwise have, have lost. And the person who's bid two, she now bids four to get over the guy who's bid three, and the guy who's bid three bids five, and you can see where this goes. And when I've done it, it's tended to be there's been a limit as to how much people felt that they were getting into trouble. But I have, it, it tends to be that $5, the highest bid, comes in at $25. Because when you get to 10 
one person is bidding 10 and says, okay, it'll be, it'll just clear the decks, it'll be even money. So this person bids $10 on the $10 bill. But the person who's just bid nine, what is she going to do? 10.01. Yeah. Or, so, which starts the cycle over again. Or maybe 11, <laughs> because it's better to lose a dollar than to lose $9. If she bids 11 and gets a $10 bill, she loses a dollar. But logically only go up to 20? Like double? No, because it's going to 20 to 19 now. So one person has bid 19, the other person bids 20. So does the person who, like the runner-up who pays, does the winner get that money too? No, I get that money yeah. as the auctioneer. So the winner gets the $10 bill, and I get all the money that's bid by the two highest bidders on that $10 bill. So I, my investment is, is $10. That's the most I can lose is $10. If someone, or the most I can lose is $9.99 because someone bids a penny and no one else bids anything. So the most I can lose is $9.99 because we sell at pennies. The most I can lose is $9.99, but the amount that I can win is unlimited as long as there's a competition between two bidders because the losing bidder is losing more and more money every time he bids and isn't the number one bidder. So the losing bidder is losing more and more money every time. And what that means is the calculation each time is I would rather lose $11 than $20. I've bid, or than $19. I've bid 19, you bid 20. If I lose, I lose 19. Does everyone see how this works? If I lose, I lose 19. But if I bid 21 and I win, then I only lose 11. So of course I bid 21 to try to cut my losses. But now you are going to lose 20 because if you don't outbid me, you're going to lose $20. And so you bid 22, and that way you only lose $12 instead of 20. But then I bid 23, so I only lose $13 instead of 20 instead of 21. And so we keep leapfrogging each other, like with tulips, we keep leapfrogging each other and outbidding the other so as not to have to eat the loss that we've already committed to. In poker, this is known as throwing good money after bad. So at Harvard Business School, what I'm told, and I have a friend who sometimes teaches there, is that when they do the money auctions with naive first-year students, which don't be, the what what will usually happen on average is that a $10 bill that the professor sets up in a money auction eventually gets sold on average for $200. Rich kids. Well, competitive rich kids that who seem dumb but end up looking dumb anyway. Right. And it's also a, a principle of behavioral economics and of gambling that losing feels worse than winning feels good. So it's the idea that they're going to lose is so bad that just they're trying not to lose rather than trying to win. And in Crazy Rich Asians, that's the interest What is it? Oh, in Crazy Rich. In my poker, and she's like, oh, he's playing not to lose, he's playing Yeah, yeah. But that's a, that's a basic... That that's maybe we'll talk about some of the some of the behavioral economics um, experiments or do them, which show that losing feels worse than winning feels good. But it's a fact about human p 
picoeconomics, which is not microeconomics, which is what happens in a household, for example, but picoeconomics, which is what happens in your brain. And in picoeconomics, losing feels worse than winning feels good. So that idea is what's why you can make so much money at a money auction, because people really don't want to lose that money. And they keep bidding more, not in hopes of winning. The, those hopes are long, long gone, but in hopes of cutting their losses because losing is so yucky. And they really get pissed off at the person they're bidding against. And so they try to punish that person by outbidding them. Huh. So you thought you would get that $10 bill for $152? I don't think so, jerk. You are now going to see that you're not going to get that bill at all because I'm bidding $153. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. And it just goes bang forth that way. Sorry? I wonder what they do with the bill after they win. Like, it seems like illogical to spend it. Yeah, at some point it does. It does seem illogical to spend it. Or something. So, so it would basically be, well, I won the auction. Ha! Take that, classmate. So, yeah. That, so... In the, in the thing that we just did, what you might think is put down 70% of the average or whatever everyone else is putting down. But then what you should do is what Ian was suggesting is figure that everyone else is trying to put down 70% of the average that everyone else is putting down. So if they think the average that everyone else is putting down is 50, they'll put down 35. But if everyone thinks that, they, will put, they should put down not 70% of 50, but 70% of 35. However, if everyone thinks that everyone else is going to put down 70% of 35, or let's say roughly, what did you say it was? 24? 24. 24.5, 70% of 35. Yeah, so, 20, so let's say everyone puts down 24. What should you put down? 70% of 24, right? Which is like 19. But if you consider that everyone else is going to put down 19 or 20, what should you put down? 70% of that. 70% yeah. Of that, 70%. Yeah. So, so it converges to 1 if 1 is the lower limit. And so if you play this with people who know the game and who also know that everyone else knows the game, they'll put down one. Economists who have studied this, if you do it with a class of econ grad students, they'll all put down one and no one will make any money and the teacher won't have to give the dollar away to the student who put down 20. You could rip it into like 20 pieces. Or you could do that. Reframe the game to make it, I'd like to give, give the option of cooperation and defection between the players as well. Like you could just say, okay, so uh, you'll get the grade that you write down, so there's an added incentive to, to write a high grade. But if, like, you know, sort of if your grade is over the, such a threshold, over the average or whatever else, whatever, yeah. Then, then you just fail, and the first side and then. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then you actually can cooperate. You can just all go, oh, well, let's all put down. A's. A's except for the one jerk. Yes, except for the, but yeah, is there a jerk? Then that's the problem. And not in this class, yeah. but in most classes, there's a jerk. Yeah. Most classes I've taken. No class I've ever taught, but most classes I've taken. So, what made you put down 20? Um, uh, first, I went from 70% of hundred and Right. But no one's actually going to put down 100. Yeah. So I went down to the next level, which is 50. And 70% of that is 35. Okay. So I thought that 
not ev everyone's trying to put lower the 35, they said 120. Okay, so, you fi so what you did was you figured four iterations. This is, in literature, this takes the form of, which you'll find especially in a lot of modern novels, it ta it's what happens, and in, in some really cool movies, it's what happens when we're keeping track of who knows what about what. So the detective and the master criminal, for example, in, you know, and, and you could say that all, all stories are detective stories, and you wouldn't be totally wrong. The detective and the master criminal are both really good at keeping track of what other people know. And, you know, just think of any detective story where someone gives themselves away because they know something that they shouldn't know. And the detective says, you know, classic example is, what would a classic example of that trope be? Where the detective says, I knew you did it because? They didn't reveal how the person died. Right. Who said she'd been stabbed? I only said she'd been murdered. Only the killer would know that she was stabbed. So it's not, it's not what you know. It's also what you know that other people don't know that you know. And not knowing that you know something is something you have to keep track of as well. So in James Joyce's Ulysses, which I think, no, I mentioned that in the other class. In James Joyce's Ulysses, there's a moment where someone thinks that someone thinks that someone thinks that X, whereas the other person knows that the first person thinks that they think that the first person thinks that X, even though that person doesn't think that X. So you can get those iterations. You think that I think that you are going to try to cheat me now, and, but I don't think that, so you're wrong. So you think that I think that, that you think that I think you're going to try to cheat me, but I don't think that. And you can ask, how far can that go? And it turns out that it's pretty robust that human brains can do about five such iterations. John knew that Mary thought that Peter hoped that, that Angela didn't know that Robert had been to the store. You guys can all follow that, right? It's hard, but you can follow it. But if I were to add two more people to that list, you wouldn't be able to follow it anymore. And it tends to be the case that that there is a breakdown between a minority, but a, but a, a serious number of people who can do like five five people, and those or six people, and most people can only do five. So detectives are the people who can do six. That's the basic idea, and the same is true with this game. That is, if you are thinking that everyone is thinking that everyone else is thinking that everyone else is thinking that they put, should put down 70% of the 70% of the 70% of the 70%, but unless you're playing it with people who actually do the math rather than doing it in their minds step by step, they'll stop at about five iterations. So you should do 70% to the fifth of of 100. And that tends to be with a naive audience 
who are nevertheless thinking really hard about it and have time to think about it, that tends to be the right answer. And what it means is if you play the game too well, then you're going to go too low. If you play the game too well, you'll do what was it you, Jimmy, who went too low? Or who went too oh Joe, you went too low. Yeah, I went one iteration too deep. Yeah, you went one iteration too deep. And you're an econ major? Hmm? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that just shows that econ majors don't know what they're doing. Um, because they because they wouldn't go as deeply as they should. So what you did was right, but it didn't work. So the same with the Keynesian beauty contest, which is you don't want to pick the person you think is most beautiful. You want to pick the person you think everyone else is most beautiful. So, but they're not picking the person they think is most beautiful. They're picking the person that everyone else is thinking is most beautiful. Eventually, you might converge if you have the idea of conventional beauty. That is, that everyone will pick a certain person, because that person is conventionally beautiful, even if you don't think that she is, you will think that other people will pick her, not because they think that she is, but because they all agree that she has conventional beauty, and then you'd have convergence. But if, it, but if they're all conventionally beautiful and you're looking for the most, the one that most people will pick, then you don't have that to rely on. So the same is true with picking stocks. What people want to do is they want to buy stocks that other people are going to want to buy. And that's what causes huge inflation of stock prices. And when you have crashes, Apple reports that the iPhone XR isn't selling as much as they thought it would. Everyone says, oh my god, Apple is rotting. And everyone dumps their Apple stock, and that's a panic. And so stampedes and panics work because you are betting on what other people will do who are themselves betting on what other people will do over multiple iterations. Okay, back to the Merchant of Venice on Monday. We're even farther behind than we were, but it's okay. And, but try to keep up with the reading. And uh, in particular, you should, you should read The Gift, Marcel Moss's book, The Gift, by Monday. And see you then. Have a good weekend. Oh yeah. Oh definitely. And, and then I wonder what makes you know financial bubbles vicious. And, and other versions of the same. And like, you know, just I mean it, Well, it's Ponzi schemes that eventually there is everyone is completely invested and the price can't go up. You know, you might like someone because you think they like you, and then they might say, like, that might be... Yeah, that's a virtuous version. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's a version of this called the altruist dilemma, which is a good version of the prisoner's dilemma, which can lead to a virtuous circle. That is, you are altruistic towards someone who's altruistic, and you reward their altruism, but because you're rewarding their altruism altruistically, they reward your altruism. And so everyone's happy. Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah. I actually, Hobbes actually talks about that and seeing a good thing too. So, you know, he's got an exactly what you said, uh, but he doesn't call it TLC. Yeah, no, that's shelling comes, comes up with that.